Chapter One of the Silver Bullet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer, San Antonio, Texas. The Silver Bullet by Fergus Hume. The House in the Pinewood. We had better lie down and die," said Robin peevishly. I can't go a step further, and to emphasize his words, he deliberately sat. Infernal little duffer, growled Herrick. Hmm. Might have guessed you a Joyce. He threw himself down beside his companion and continued grumbling. You have tobacco, a fine night, and a heather couch of the finest, yet you talk as though the world were coming to an end. I'm sure this more will never end, sighed Joyce, reminded of his cigarettes. We've been trudging it since eight in the morning, yet it still stretches to the back of beyond. Hey! The pedestrians were pronouncedly isolated. A moonless sky, thickly jeweled with stars, arched over a treeless moor, far stretching as the plain of Shinar. In the luminous summer twilight, the eye could see for a moderate distance, but to no clearly defined horizon, and the verge of sight was limited by vague shadows, hardly definite enough to be mists. The more exhaled the noonday heats in thin white vapors, which shut out from the external world those who nestled to its bosom. Sense of solitude, the brooding silence, the formless surroundings, and above all, the insistence of the infinite would have appealed on ordinary occasions to the poetical and superstitious side of Robin's nature. But at the moment his nerves were uppermost. He was worn out, fractious as a child, and in his helplessness could have cried like one. Herrick knew his friend's frail physique, and inherited neurosis. Therefore he forbore to make bad worse by ill-advised sympathy. Judiciously waiting until Joyce had in some degree soothed himself with tobacco, he talked of the commonplace. Nine o'clock, said he, peering at his watch, thirteen hours walking. Nothing to me, Robin, but a goodish stretch to you. However, we are within hail of civilization, and in England. A few miles further, we'll pick up a village of some sorts, no doubt. One would think you were exploiting Africa the way you howl. He spoke thus callously, in order to brace his friend, but Joyce resented the tone with that exaggerated sense of injury peculiar to the neurotic. "'I am no Hercules like you, Jim,' he protested sullenly. "'All your finer feelings have been blunted by beef and beer. You can't feel things as I do.' "'Also,' continued Robin, still more querulously, "'it seems to have escaped your memory that I returned only last night from a two-day visit to town. If you will break up your holiday into fragments, you must not expect to receive the benefits its enjoyment as a whole would give you. It was jolly enough last week, sauntering through the Midlands, till you larked up to London, and fagged yourself with its detestable civilization. Joyce threw aside his cigarette and nervously began to roll another. It was no lark which took me up, Jim. The letter that came to Southbury Inn was about her business. Sorry, old man, I keep forgetting your troubles. Heat and the want of food makes me savage. We'll rest here for a time and then push on. 
Not that a night in the open would matter to me. Joyce made no reply, but lying full length on the dry herbage, stared at the scintillating sky. At his elbow, Herrick, cross-legged like a fakir, gave himself up to the enjoyment of a disreputable pipe. The more highly strung man considered the circumstances which had placed him where he was. Two months previously, Robin Joyce had lost his mother, to whom he had been devotedly attached, and the consequent grief had made a wreck of him. For weeks he had shut himself up in the flat, once brightened by her presence to luxuriate in woe. He possessed in a large degree that instinct of martyrdom, latent in many people, which searches for sorrow as a more joyous nature hunts for pleasure. The blow of Mrs. Joyce's death had fallen unexpectedly, but it brought home to Robin the knowledge, strange as it may sound, that a mental pleasure can be plucked from misfortune. He locked himself in his room, wept much, and ate little, neglected his business of contributor to several newspapers, and his personal appearance. Thus the pain of his loss merged itself in that delight of self-mortification, which must have been experienced by the hermits of the Theobald. Not entirely from religious motives was the desert made populous with hermits in the days of Cyril and Hypatia. Herrick did not realize this transcendental indulgence, nor would he have understood it had he done so. Emphatically a sane man, he would have deemed it a weakness degrading to the will, if not a species of lunacy. As it was, he merely saw that Robin yielded to an unrestrained grief detrimental to his health, and insisted upon carrying him off for a spell in the open air. With less trouble than he had anticipated, Robin's consent was obtained. The mourner threw himself with ardor into the scheme, selected the county of Berks as the most inviting for a ramble, and when fairly started, showed a power of endurance amazing in one so frail. Jim, however, being a doctor, was less astonished than a layman would have been. He knew that in Joyce a tremendous nerve power dominated the feebler muscular force, and that the man would go on like a blood horse until he dropped from sheer exhaustion. The collapse on the moor did not surprise him. He only wondered that Robin had held out for so many days. "'But I wish you had not gone to London,' said Herrick, pursuing aloud this train of thought. "'I had to go,' replied Joyce, not troubling to query the remark. "'The lawyer wrote about my poor mother's property. In my sorrow, I had neglected to look after it. But at Southbury Junction, feeling better, thanks to your open-air cure, I thought it wise to attend to the matter.' Then Joyce went on to state, with much detail, how he had caught the Paddington Express at Marley, their last stopping place, and had seen his lawyer. The business took some time to settle, but it resulted in the knowledge that Joyce found himself possessed of five hundred a year in consuls. Also the flat and the furniture, said Robin. So I am not so badly off. I can devote myself wholly to novels now, and shall not have to rack my brains for newspaper articles. Herrick nodded over a newly filled pipe. Did you sleep at the flat? No, I went up on Tuesday, as you know, and slept that night at the Hull Hotel, a small house in one of the Strand side streets. Last night I joined you at Southbury. And it is now Thursday, said Herrick, laughing. 
how particular you are to detail robin well southbury is a goodish way behind us now and saxham is our next resting place feel better yes thanks in another quarter of an hour i shall make the attempt to reach saxham but we are so late i fear no bed oh that's all right we can wake the landlord i calculate we have only three miles quite enough too by the way jim what did you do when i left you in the semi-darkness herrick chuckled fell in love said he hmm you lost no time about it and she a daughter of the gods divinely tall dark hair creamy skin sea-blue eyes the figure and gait of diana and more of the celt than the greek interrupted joyce blue eyes black hair that is the irish type where did you see her in southbury church talking to a puny curate who did not deserve such a companion oh robin her voice like a aeolian harp it must possesses a variety of tones then jim did she see you herrick nodded and laughed again she looked and blushed beauty drew me with a single hair therefore i thrilled responsive love at first sight robin heigh-ho never again shall i see this helen of marley live in hope said joyce springing to his feet allons mon ami the more leisurely herrick rose markedly surprised at this sudden recuperation wonderful man one minute you are dying the next skipping like a two-year-old hysterical all the same he added as joyce laughed those three miles explained the other feverishly i feel that i have to walk them and my determination is braced to breaking point that means you'll collapse halfway retorted the doctor unstrapping his knapsack light a match valerian for you my man robin made no objection he knew the value of valerium for those unruly nerves of his at present vibrating like so many harp-strings twanged by an unskilled player his small white face looked smaller and whiter than ever in the faint light of the match but his great black eyes flamed like wind-blown torches the contrast of herrick's sun-tanned saxon looks struck him as almost ludicrous joyce needed no mirror to assure him of his appearance at the moment he knew only too well how he aged on the eve of a nerve-storm for the present it was averted by the valerian but he knew and so did herrick that sooner or later it would surely come we must get on as fast as possible said herrick the knapsack again on his broad back food drink rest you need all three forward for some time they walked on in silence robin was so small dr jim so large that they looked like the giant and the dwarf of the old fairy tale on their travels but in this case it was the giant who did all the work joyce was a pampered lazy irresponsible child in the direct line of descent from harold skimpole if jim herrick must be likened to another hero of romance amias lee was his prototype the shadows melted before them and closed in behind and still there was nothing but plain and mist at the end of two miles a dark bulk like a thundercloud loomed before them it stretched directly across their path boogie laughed robin a wood said the more prosaic jim this moor is fringed with pine woods remember the forest we passed through this morning 
In the cheerful sunshine, shuddered Joyce, I don't like woodlands by night. The fairies are about, and the goblins of the worst. Ha! Yonder, the lantern of Puck. Oberon holds revel in the wood. Puck must be putting a girdle around the earth then, Robin, said Herrick, and stared at a white starry light, which beamed above the trees. He cat's torch, cried Joyce, a meeting of witches, and he began to chant the gruesome rhymes of the sisterhood, as Macbeth heard them. The scene is a blasted heath, too, said he. By this time the moon was rising, and the silver shafts struck inward to the heart of the pines. The aerial light vanished behind the leafy screen, as the travelers came to a halt on the verge of the undergrowth. "'We must get through,' said Dr. Jim, or if you like, Robin, we can skirt round. Saxon Village is just beyond, I fancy. "'Let us choose the beeline,' murmured Joyce. "'I want a bed and a meal as soon as possible. This part of the world is unknown to me. You lead.' "'I don't know it myself. However, here is a path. We'll follow it to the light. That comes from a tower of sorts, too high up for a house.' With Herrick as pioneer, they plunged into the wood, following a winding path. In the gloom, their heads came in contact with boughs and tree-trunks, but occasionally the moon made radiant the secret recesses, and revealed unexpected openings. The path sometimes passed across the glade, and on the sward, of which Joyce declared he saw the fairies dancing, and anon plunged into a Cimmerian gloom, suggestive of the underworld. No wind swung the heavy pine boughs. The wild creatures of the wood gave no sign, made no stir. Yet the explorers heard a low, persistent swish, swir, swish, like the murmur of a dying breeze. It came from no particular direction, but droned on all sides without pause, without change of note. Herrick heard Robin's hysterical sob as the insistent sound bored into his brain. He would have made some remark, but at the moment they emerged into an open space of considerable size. Here, ringed by pines, loomed a vast gray house with a slim tower. In that tower burned the steady light, outshining even the moon's luster. But what was more remarkable still was the illumination of the mansion. Every window radiated white fire. Queer, said Robin, halting on the verge of the wood, not even a fence or a wall, a path or an outhouse. One would think that this was an inferior Aladdin's palace, dropped here by some negligent genie. All ablaze, too, he added wonderingly. The owner must be given a ball. No signs of guests, anyhow, returned Herrick, as puzzled as his companion. Hmm. Queer thing to find, Versailles, in a pine wood. However, it may afford us a bed and a supper. It was certainly strange. The circle of trees stopped short of a building at fifty yards. On all sides stretched an expanse of shorn and well-kept turf, pathless as the sea. In its mist, the mansion was dropped, as Joyce aptly put it, unexpectedly. A two-story Tudor building with battlements and mullioned windows, terraces, and flights of shallow steps. The whole weather worn and gray in the moonlight, overgrown with ivy and distinctly ruinous. The dilapidated state of the house contrasted in a rather sinister manner with the perfectly kept lawn. Also another curious contrast was the tower. This tacked on to the western corner, 
stood like a lean white ghost watching over its earthly habitation. Its gleaming stonework and sharp outlines showed that it had been built within the last decade, a distinct anachronism, which marred the quaint antiquity of the medieval mansion. "'He must be an astrologer,' said Joyce, referring to the owner, "'or it may be that the tower is an inland pharaoh to guide travelers across that pathless moor. Another horrible place,' he muttered. "'Why horrible?' asked Dr. Jim, as they crossed the lawn. Robin shuddered and cast a backward glance. I can hardly explain, but to my mind, there is something sinister in this lonely mansion, ablaze with light, yet devoid of inhabitants. We have yet to find out if that is the case, Robin. Hello. The door is open, and in the strong moonlight they looked wonderingly at each other. The heavy door, oak, clamped with iron, was slightly ajar. Herrick bent upon consummating the adventure, pushed it slightly open. They beheld a large hall with a tessellated pavement and stately columns. Between these last stood black oak high-backed chairs, upholstered in red velvet. Also, statues of Greek gods and goddesses, holding aloft opaque globes, radiant with light. A vast marble staircase with wide and shallow steps sloped upwards, and on either side of this, from the height of the landing, fell scarlet velvet curtains, shutting in the hall. The whiteness of the marble, the crimson of the draperies, the brilliance of the light, these sumptuous furnishings amazed the dusty pedestrians. It was as though, on a lonely prairie, one should step suddenly into the splendors of the Vatican. "'The palace of the sleeping beauty,' whispered the awestruck Robin. "'Who can say romance is dead, when one can stumble upon such an adventure?' Herrick shared Robin's perplexity, but of a more practical nature. He addressed himself less to the romance than to the reality. Seeing no one, hearing nothing, he touched an ivory button. That glimmered a white spot beside the door. Immediately a silvery succession of sounds shrilled through the apparently lonely house. Electric bells, electric light. The hermit of this establishment is up to date. He's also deaf and has no servants, said Joyce impatiently after a few minutes had passed. Has a Borgian banquet taken place here? The guests seem to be dead. Hi! The whole thing is damnable. Don't let yourself go, said the doctor roughly, squeezing the little man's arm. Wait and see the upshot. Again and again they rang the bell, and themselves heard its imperative summons, but no one appeared. Then they took their courage in both hands and stepped into the house. Passing through the crimson curtains, they found themselves in a wide corridor, enameled green, with velvet carpet and more light-bearing statues. On either side were doors draped with emerald silk. Herrick led the way through one of these, for Joyce, rendered timorous by the adventure, would not take the initiative. In the first room, an oval table was set out for a solitary meal. The linen was bleached as the alpine snow, the silver antique, the crystal exquisite, the porcelain worth its weight in gold. An iridescent glass vase in the center was filled with flowers, but these drooped, withered, and brown. The bread was also stale. The fruits were shriveled from their early freshness. Magnificently furnished and draped, the room glowed in splendor under innumerable electric lights. 
but the intruders had eyes only for the sumptuous table, with its air of desolation and its place set for one. Anything more sinister can scarcely be conceived. No one has sat down to this meal, said Herrick, lifting the covers of the silver dishes. It has stood here for hours, if not for days. Let us see if we can find the creature for whom it was intended. Perhaps you expect to find the beast that loved beauty, since you call him a creature, said Robin hysterically. Here is wine. Dr. Jim went to the sideboard, whereupon were ranged decanters of Venetian glass containing many different vintages. Passing over these, he selected a pint bottle of champagne. We must make free of our position, he said, unwiring this. Afterwards, we can apologize. Ugh, cried Robin, as the cork popped with a staccato sound in the silence. How gruesome. Give me a glass at once, Jim. I don't know if it is good for you in your present state, replied the doctor, brimming a goblet. However, the whole adventure is so queer that an attack of nerves is excusable. Drink up. Robin did so and was joined by Jim. They finished the bottle and felt exhilarated and more ready to face the unknown. Again Herrick led the way to further explorations. Adjacent to the dining room, they discovered a small kitchen, white tiled and completely furnished. Our hermit cooks for himself, declared Dr. Jim, eyeing the utensils of polished copper. This is not a servant's kitchen. Also, it is off the dining room. Robin made no reply, but followed his friend, his large eyes becoming larger at every fresh discovery. They entered a drawing-room filled with splendid furniture, silver knick-knacks, costly china, and eastern hangings of great price. There was a library stored with books in magnificent bindings, and with tables piled with latter-day magazines, novels, and newspapers. Our hermit keeps himself abreast of the world, commented Jim. Then came a picture gallery, but this was on the second story and lighted from the roof. Treasures of art, ancient and modern, glowed here under the radiance of the light, which illuminated every room. A smoking room, fashioned like a ship's cabin, a Japanese apartment, crammed with the lacquer work, and stiff embroideries of Yedo and Yokohama. A shooting gallery, a bowling alley, a music room, containing a magnificent irad. Finally, a dozen bedrooms furnished with taste and luxury. To crown all, they discovered a gymnasium, fitted up completely even the foils and boxing gloves, and a huge bathroom. This last was throughout of white marble, with a square pool of water in the center. What a pond to bathe in, cried Jim enviously, for he was hot and dusty. Our hermit is an ancient Roman. He understands how to enjoy life. Come along, Robin. By this time they had explored almost the whole of the wonderful house. There remained the back premises, but on entering they found nothing but darkness and dirt, squalor and coldness. The hermit's attention to his mansion stopped short at the servant's door. And I don't believe he has any servants, declared Joyce. How the deuce does he keep all this clean? The doctor shook his head. He hardly knew what to say. The situation was beyond him. A palace in the wilderness, with an open door inviting thieves, crammed with treasures, brilliant with light, uninhabited, deserted. Was there ever anything so wonderful? He had to pinch himself to make sure that he was awake, 
We have got into the world of the fourth dimension, the fairyland of the Arabian Nights. What do you think, Joyce? I think we had better climb up to the tower, said Robin, with unusual common sense. It is the only place we have left unexplored. There's a light there, too. Aladdin may be aloft. Herrick shook his head. He would have heard the bell. However, come along. We must find someone. With some difficulty, they discovered the staircase leading to the tower. It was narrow but straight, not so steep as might have been expected. At the top, Herrick, leading as usual, was confronted by a closed door of plain deal. It was not locked, however, and having knocked without receiving a reply, he opened it. Joyce at his heels, peeped over his shoulder, and beheld a small square room with windows on all four sides, and a large central globe burning in the ceiling. In contrast to the rest of the house, this room was absolutely bare, blank walls, Chinese matting on the floor, a camp bedstead in one corner, a deal table without a covering in another, and two cane chairs. No anchorite could have had a more ascetic cell. Herrick took in the scene at a glance, took in also its, to him, central feature, the body of a man lying face downward near the bed. Joyce saw the corpse also, and remained at the door, shaking and white. Murder or suicide, Jim asked himself, as he turned over the dead. That which had once been a man was an evening dress, in the finest of linen and jewelry, the most immaculate of clothes. It lay under the scrutinizing eye of Dr. Herrick, a lean, evil face with a hooked nose, scanty gray hair cut short, and a long mustache carefully trimmed. The left hand gripped a revolver. The shirt front over the heart was covered with blood, and a stream, coagulated and black, streaked the matting. "'In God's name!' cried Joyce, not daring to enter. "'What is it?' "'It was once the owner of this house, I suppose,' said Herrick, grimly. "'Now it is a piece of carrion. Suicide, apparently. Dead over twenty-four hours. Shot through the heart. A steady hand to do that. Hmm. Left-handed, too. Is it suicide or murder?' "'Here's a damnable discovery to cap the adventure,' said Dr. Jim, gravely. From the doorway came a gasp, a tittering laugh. Jim had just time to spring forward when Joyce lunged into his arms. The long-expected nerve storm had come at last. End of Chapter 1